We are back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. Space exploration is the province of enormous teams with enormous budgets, if you think of NASA or SpaceX. Well, a team of tech-savvy, ambitious students at UGA is on course to change the game by thinking small. The Small Satellite Research Laboratory at the University of Georgia brings faculty and students together from across campus with one goal in mind, to get a satellite into space. And two launches are planned late this year and next. A few innovators from the team join us from WUGA in Athens. Associate Director David Cotton, he's research scientist from UGA's geography department. David, hello. Hello. Also with us, graduate student Hollis Neal. He's co-founder of the lab. Good morning, Hollis. Good morning to you. Thanks for having us. And Katie Summy, she's an engineering student working on payload. Hello, Katie. Hello. Well, thank you all for being here. I'm going to start with you, Hollis, as a co-founder. I understand it was another innovation that preceded this push to put something into space. What was that? Yeah, so it's it's pretty fun. So um, somebody that's not here with us, Caleb Adams, actually went over to Virginia Tech for a hackathon, and they created a remote-controlled um, telescope and won the hackathon over there. It was um, UGA's first, you know, big hackathon win. And um, ever since then, he kind of came back. We brought together a team um, and we figured how hard, you know, would it be to just keep going, keep going on this momentum um, and wanted to just send something up to space. And so we were going to send up a just, you know, small glorified Sputnik um, with these this new technology that's called a CubeSat. Um, and we were doing that. We were bothering as many faculty members as we could find. And that's actually how we ran into all of the amazing faculty here at UGA um, and started kind of getting this whole thing rolling. I love that it started with how hard can this be? <laughs> what did it prove to be? Oh, it's very difficult. But I feel like um, at the very beginning, we knew like one of the just really exciting aspects of the, of this journey that we've had was just on the front end, knowing how much we would learn through it and how much stuff we didn't know going in. And so, you know, how hard can it be? But we knew it was hard, but we were excited to find out what those challenges were. So I wanted to pick up on what you said. These are CubeSats or small satellites, Cube satellites. Katie, paint a picture for us. How small is a small satellite? It depends on the... There's like designation. So a U is roughly... 10 by 10 by a little over 10 centimeters. Yeah, so not a perfect cube, but roughly. And then, so one of our satellites will be a 3U, which is like roughly the size of a loaf of bread. Hmm. And then our other satellite is actually a 6U, um, and it's going to be placed right beside it. So like two loaves of bread. Now that's creating even a small spacecraft is expensive and difficult. You first started with a Kickstarter campaign and then found research partners to give the project some purpose, which is where you come in, David. You're a research scientist working on coastal monitoring coastal waters. How did this fit in? Well, at the same time, Hollis and the student team were, you know, wanting to put up a glorified Sputnik, myself and the faculty, we wanted to see if we could get our own sensor into space to, you know, monitor the coastal areas of Georgia. And we learned that was extremely difficult and expensive, but... At the same time, we met the student team because they reached out to us and we found these opportunities through NASA and the Air Force that allowed faculty to work with students to build satellites and payloads and put them into space. So we applied for both of them and actually won both grants. Katie, this is your area. Can you distinguish for me a satellite and a payload? Yes. So the satellite's going to have your stack that has all of the electronics for communication and power and all of those sorts of things, whereas the actual payload is what's going to gather the science for the mission. Mm -hmm. So how many people are involved in this? 
there's about 12 faculty from around campus and each semester it kind of varies, but around 50 students, a mix of graduate students and undergraduates. Now, I understand CubeSats still, being small, are expensive. And you mentioned, David, a grant from NASA. This is a $200,000 grant from the Undergraduate Student Instrument Project. So what is NASA's interest in small satellite technology? Hollis, I'll ask you. Okay, awesome. Um, So the interest for them is um, there's kind of two different trains that they go into. There's one train, which is technology demonstration. So it's um, proving things that have previously been unproven. So, for example, for our our multi-view onboard computational imager mission, we're proving GPUs in space. Um, GPUs in space are very uncommon, and processing data onboard a satellite is very uncommon. So we're proving that technology in space. And on the other side of that is actual science data. So with the miniaturization of technology, we're able to pack in a lot more, you know, sensors, a lot more, you know, um, just capability with these smaller, cheaper missions, um, so that we can actually look at science. So, for example, our, our spectral ocean color satellite is looking at the coastal Georgia area. Um, but it, this is just one satellite. If you want to expand it up and, you know, for a very cheap satellite, actually have multiple satellites, you're able to have these huge constellations to have just a lot of capability. And there are actually some companies out there now that um, are taking advantage of that and having, you know, imaging the entire globe daily. Um, and so they're, you know, very science-oriented, very... Um, you know, seeing what we can do with this data to, to better everyday life. So the, uh, you, you, go ahead, David. I would like to add to this. One of the things they like and what we've seen here is it's training students. Students, like the ones sitting across from me at this table, are getting hands-on experience of handling hardware that goes to space. And they are the ones that do all the testing, all the integration, and they're the ones that are putting the satellite together. So NASA, the Air Force, and industry love that because people come out of UGA and are ready for the workforce. Well, tell us about that a little bit more. I want to go into the individual satellites. The SPOC, this was the spectral ocean color. This is something that you're working with directly, David. What is it actually monitoring? What can you see because of this, the enabled by this satellite, or ultimately be able to see? Well, it's actually... It's a multi-spectral imager that's adjustable, so we can adjust what wavelengths we see and send down to Earth. And that allows us to monitor coastal areas and see if there's algal blooms or sediment plumes in the water and possibly see if there's die-off of the marsh and, you know, other phenology aspects of the coastal regions. And so you also got a grant, or the lab got a grant, rather, from the Air Force for Mochi. This is another <laughs> This is another satellite. What is that exactly? Hollis? Um, so that's the multi-view onboard computational imager, um, and it's, it's a very exciting satellite. So it has a, a very high-performance optical system on it, so we can get up to, like, 6-meter resolution um, Earth imagery. And then the, the really interesting part, as I mentioned earlier, is the, the onboard GPU. So the, the plan for, for Mochi is to be able to process all of its data on board and to send down just that processed data product. So the, the conventional way of, of processing the data is just collect the raw data on the, the platform, so the satellite, and then send it down. And it's very inefficient. You have massive amounts of data. Mm-hmm. And then you process it into a much smaller data product. So what we're doing with Mochi is we're, we're planning on doing all the processing on board and then downlinking the much smaller data set, which is the actual data that we want. 
Okay, so give me some basics on satellites. I, I don't even know how a satellite gets into space. What kind of specs or what kind of approvals do you have to get to even launch one? Oh, this is this is a really fun area, um, and actually, what I'm I'm currently I currently have a headache with. Um, so, we have three primary organizations that we have to license and coordinate with. There's the International Amateur Radio Union, who we're currently talking with, um, the FCC, and then there's also NOAA. Um, so NOAA, we have to get permission to take images of the planet. Mm -hmm. um, the International Amateur Radio Union, we have to get permission to use amateur radio bands. And then the FCC is the kind of final stamp saying like, okay, you have permission to transmit um, as a United States, you know, entity. Who determines where they go? Uh, so we do to a certain extent. Um, the MOCHI mission has a lot more flexibility on where they can be placed in orbit. But for the, the Spock mission, um, we actually work with a company called Nanorax, and we hand the satellite off to them. They go and integrate it onto uh, you know, a rocket or a ISS resupply cargo um, International mission. Space Station? Yes, that's yeah. correct. Um, <laughs> you know, we're, we, we, we speak a different language maybe a little bit, so just need some oh, translation. <laughs> feel free to call me out whenever I forget to... To explain an acronym, it's definitely part of our language. Um, and then once we hand it off to the rockets um, or the, the launch providers, what we call them, um, they'll send it up and it'll either get handed to the International Space Station where then astronauts will work it into um, putting it on an arm and then the arm will go below the International Space Station and um, kind of shoot the satellite off the, the International Space Station. Or the rocket method will just be kind of pop out the side of the rocket. That's Hollis Neal. He's a co-founder of UGA Small Satellite Research Laboratory, also speaking with David Cotton, who's on the faculty there as associate director, and Katie Summy. All right, so a couple of more questions. How long does it stay up there, and who's responsible for maintaining it? I guess I'll take that one as well. So um, <laughs> You're our guy. So we're, yeah, we're, we're currently estimating that our satellite's going to be up there about two to two and a half years. Um, and in, in terms of maintenance, that's we will be doing that here. Um, we've been working on a, a full ground station here at the University of Georgia, and we, um, we currently have it, all of the pieces operating nominally. It's just now the name of the game is going to be getting all of those pieces to work together to be able to communicate with our satellite and to get, you know, health data and stuff back so we can tell it, oh, you know, don't point at the sun, that's bad for their camera. Mm -hmm. um, and also, you know, it'll tell us whether or not it's getting too hot, whether it's, you know, batteries are too depleted. And so we'll just be able to do that station kind of, you know, uh, monitoring from here as well as telling it where to to go and take pictures. So you have to design these teeny little cameras, obviously, to go on this. Katie, what goes into that? Yeah, so we actually, the camera itself we didn't design, but the optical system that goes in front of that camera we did. Um, it was, you spend a lot of time aligning uh, the different mm -hmm. lenses and the diffraction grading and the mirrors because you're taking a optic system and you're really shrinking it down. So there's a lot of, um, you have to, where the light comes in, you have to somehow rearrange it to fit in that tiny little box and also get the re different, the resolution and the, be able to get the data you want. Um, so it mostly started, we had a simple design, and we kind of ran from there. We did an engineering unit first, and to prove that everything, you know, worked together and that we were actually able to align it ourselves. And then we started on the flight unit, which went to um, NASA Goddard for testing. 
a few months back, and we got great results. Um, but it's it's a long and kind of tedious process working with optics, but um, it's been really fun. So, David, I'm wondering, like, you know, you are associate director here, you and and you're overseeing the design of this, and you're talking about 50 members and students from a variety of departments across campus, engineers, computer scientists, business and art students, and faculty. How do they make decisions inside of this group to to come forward with those designs? We do have a very strong team structure where there's team members and then there's leads of those different teams and then a core leadership of students. And then we have weekly faculty meetings. So a lot of it is the students, you know, come to us with a couple options. You know, here are the two choices that will work, and then we work as a team, the faculty and students alike, to see what is the most optimal solution, both in terms of risk and our abilities. Well, it sounds very serious, but from the outside, it looks like you have a lot of fun. <laughs> You've got some promotional videos that all of them have a sense of humor. I understand you name some of your equipment with humorous names. So what is that atmosphere like, and how does that impact the work that the lab is doing? Hollis, what do you think? Um, so it, it's definitely a lot of fun being a lab member here. Um, we we do have a lot of fun. Um, so th- the reason why we we do play around um, with things is because of like how much serious work that there is in the lab. So we we do a lot of research. We do a lot of really intense processing and like programming and and whatnot. Um, and so really, we'll we'll have these kind of fun things. It's just like you know, kind of keeping things in perspective um, of like being able to enjoy where we are. Um, one of my biggest kind of frustrations recently has been just not being able to slow down to enjoy, like, you know, the trips to NASA that we've been taking and, like, all of the really fun milestones that we've been hitting um, because, you know, that's what ultimately makes it, you know, just feel totally worthwhile. So we have all those distractions. We actually, one fun thing that will freak people out when we go, they go to the lab is we have, um, you know, a Nintendo 64 over in the corner. And so... <laughs> We also keep lab records for how long um, people have been in the lab. So you'll see, you know, on the lab board that somebody was in the lab contiguously for 64 hours. And it's like, well, how do you keep up work when you're in the lab for that long? How do you do things? Well, you know, every like seven or eight hours, we'll just play Super Smash Bros and, you know, have fun. Well, and now it looks like hundreds of students applied for 10 spots that were available in the lab. I'm wondering for you, Katie, besides being a pretty cool line on your resume, what are you taking away from your time with this, the Small Satellite Research Lab? That's a hard question to answer a lot. I mean, are the team functions so differently than any other research environment or work environment I've ever been in, which has been a really cool experience. Being a team lead was you get something that an undergraduate normally would never get to do. Um, so it's a lot of responsibility, but it's also working with a good team is very, very rewarding. And um, I then like, you know, I'm so young and I've put my, well, gloved hands on something that's going to go into orbit. So that's like, it's crazy to think about. That is a pretty amazing thing. What does the future look like for the lab after Spock and Mochi? We're still going to keep pursuing, you know, building sensors for environmental monitoring and keeping the track on, you know, pushing computational abilities in space because that's that's what's needed and that's what we want to keep doing and, you know, keeping students involved and hopefully getting some more partnerships with Georgia companies so that we can keep some of the students here because a lot of them are being pulled, you know, to other NASA centers or the West Coast and, you know, the big industry there, but we want to try to keep them in Georgia. 
I'm wondering for you, Katie and Hollis, uh, last week when we were hearing all about the 50th anniversary of the first moon launch, how did you witness that? Did you did you do anything to celebrate? Oh, so I, I definitely, I mean, I don't know if you could really consider this like a normal celebration, but I, I binge watched YouTube videos of people talking <laughs> about like fixing the Apollo um, flight computers and um, you know, like original, you know, launch footage and stuff. And so I, I binge watched that for a good couple of hours um, because it's absolutely amazing what they were able to do. And it, it blows my mind how much technology they were able to pack into that module that long ago. Hollis Neal, thank you very much. Katie Summy and David Cotton for all from the Small Satellite Research Lab at UGA. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Now, you may have seen on social media that OST got a nice nod from former President Obama over the weekend. He tweeted about our conversation with Georgia Tech schooled rocket scientist Tiffany Davis. Well, we were also super happy to hear about a much more old school audience. Last week, we played a recording of Vicki Graves talking about working for NACA, the predecessor to NASA. And we were thrilled to learn that now 85-year-old Vicki listened to that segment on the radio, along with fellow residents at Kingsbridge Retirement Community in Atlanta. Apparently, none of them knew about her past as a human computer or as an advocate for passage of the Equal Rights Amendment. We are very happy, Vicki, Vicki, to play a role in outing you. However, wherever and with whom you listen, we love telling stories of Georgia and we love hearing about yours and your thoughts. Share them on our Facebook group, GPB Radio's On Second Thought. We're on Twitter at OST Talk. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks so much for taking some time to listen. We'll be back tomorrow with more On Second Thought.